For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Yeah, you can think of them like cars. You know, cars are just tools. They help us go from place to place. I wouldn't want a toddler driving a car because they don't have that kind of skill set nor psychological development. And I don't want many people working with psychedelic states if they don't have the skill set or the psychological development to be able to come intimately into those places that they fear the most. So oftentimes if people say, well, I want to have an experience or I want to start the process, I say, well, great. I appreciate your eagerness or your curiosity at minimum. Do you have a meditation practice? Do you have an experience of getting really scared or, you know, up and close and personal with something that feels very uncomfortable? And if so, how did you manage it? Have you ever been in a float tank? Do you know what a float tank is? Can you be with yourself in the dark alone? If that's scary, how do you deal with it? When you get triggered or stressed, how do you deal with that? And so there's a lot to talk about kind of leading in how to self-regulate, how to come back to breath, how to recognize when the mind goes on a crazy loop, get curious and recontextualize the interest level because the ego typically moves away from the discomfort, particularly in our society. We, we don't like being uncomfortable and yet that can be rehabilitated. We can tell a different story. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everyone. Sue and I are closely following the really exciting developments in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. It's an area that's changing really quickly as the FDA trials keep generating consistently good news about the effects that these molecules have in conjunction with psychotherapy. Now, Sue says all the time, it's about psychedelic-assisted therapy. So it's an emphasis on facilitating individualized healing, not on the drug by itself. So it's not psychedelic therapy, but deep individualized therapy assisted by psychedelic medicine. So with that in mind, we decided to invite our guest today, an expert in exactly this area. 
So Dr. Dan Engel serves as a psychiatric consultant for several global healing centers facilitating the use of long-standing indigenous plant medicines for healing and awakening. His clinical practice combines aspects of regenerative medicine, psychedelic research, integrative spirituality, and also peak performance. He is the founder and medical director of Caillou Institute for Transformational Medicine in Austin, Texas. He's also the founder of the Full Spectrum Medicine, which is a psychedelic integration and educational platform, as well as Thank You Life, a nonprofit funding stream supporting access to psychedelic therapies. His latest book is called Dose of Hope, a story of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So before we jump in, I want to do a big shout out to our sponsor, Simple Practice. Both Sue and I actually this year were looking around for platforms and we tried several of them to help us manage our own practice and Simple Practice was the winner. It has an easy startup process and really excellent customer service. And good news, they offer our listeners a sweet deal to try it out. So go to simplepractice.com slash therapist uncensored. And by the way, for all of our episodes... Those of you out there that are our NeuroNerd supporters, you also are the major sponsors of this program. And we invite anyone out there that can and would like to join us at therapistuncensored.com slash join to become a premium member. Okay, it's with our pleasure we share this conversation between my co-host Sue Marriott and Dr. Dan Engel. Well, hey, welcome aboard. Dr. Dan, we're so happy that you agreed to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Sue. It's going to be so nice. We're going to have an expert who's going to really walk us through the state of the state, the state of the art, you know, what's happening with psychedelic medicine, in particular with an eye towards the medicines that are kind of in the queue. So psilocybin, MDMA, and ketamine, which is the legal one at this point, right? Yeah. Would you mind going ahead and jumping in and just, you know, do a little warm up here, get people oriented to the subject partly, say a little bit about yourself, where you are, uh, who you are, and then a little bit about your background. You've got a really interesting story that I think will lead us right into some of these conversations. Sure. Yeah. Happy to do that. Right now I'm in Austin, Texas, back home. I'm from San Antonio and Austin. We're neighbors. Yeah. We're right <laughs> down the road from each other. So yeah, next time we're right. having this conversation, it'll probably be in person. That's right. That'd be awesome. I just opened up my center, Kuya, K-U-Y-A, and it's already been beautiful to see the community build and start. We're wanting to reform and rebirth the new kind of vision for what mental health can look like, the mental health centers can look like. So we have an excellent suite of services. We have a beautiful facility, and those two things still sit on top of the fertile, rich foundation, which is our community. And the way we've practiced mental health, psychology, psychiatry for the last many decades has been primarily in isolation. So when a person goes to see their therapist or their physician, it's usually in isolation and it's not really connected to a community. So we wanted to reform that. And so our community is really based in a transformational model where everybody is going through their own process of transformation through their own experience and through their own lens. So the community starts to be able to support itself and kind of lift everybody up. And when you say community, what do you mean specifically? So we have a 10,000 square foot facility, 2,000 square feet of that or community space. So you mean like the Austin community or your community of clinicians or patients or? All the above. We see clients from all over the country. 
And the suite of services, because we have a 20 person sauna and cold plunges and float tanks and an IV lounge and a tea and tonic bar, we have a lot of associated therapeutics that we can put around the medicine work to support the medicine work doing its job even better. And so we don't have to rely on the medicine work to do everything. And we wanted to build this around a community model. So principally around our clients and our patients coming in the door, but also around the recognition that many people who come to see us are going to become to heal a particular constellation of symptoms, depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, pain. And our services are very good. We have an excellent track record and we're tracking all of our data. And we want to be able to tell not only the new story of this kind of transformational medicine approach, but we want to show the data because story moves culture, but data moves science. So when we can show the data and really showcase not only the people's transformational experience, we can say, oh yeah, on paper, it makes sense that people would be feeling better because their chronic inflammatory markers are are down. Their organic etiology and cause for their longstanding depression has been identified and worked towards resolution, whether it's an adrenal issue, a thyroid issue, gut dysbiosis, immune system dysregulation, particularly in the midst of COVID or a variety of other non-organic issues, lifestyle issues, sleep dysregulation, toxicity in the diet, you know, these are all part of the assessment that we have to look at because we're this really beautiful, complex, biopsychosocial, spiritual machinery. And if we're only looking at the neurochemistry kind of from the standard of care psychiatric model, then we're losing the majority of the whole picture. So our suite of service is very good in regards to the healing kind of orientation when we put people through our protocols. And those same suite of services are very good for people that are also optimizing. Because if somebody doesn't necessarily have a thing that they want to quote unquote heal or fix, it's still good to do a sauna and a cold plunge and float and get IVs and optimize and be making sure that the dietary approach that you're using is good for your physiology and your constitution and the right time of the year and, you know, the balance of your micro macronutrients. And so all of this has the opportunity to tell a different story, which is we're all in the hairless monkey suit (laughs) going through our process of transformation, just doing it a little bit differently. And so when we can combine an optimization and a healing community, then it just by osmosis allows people that have been stigmatized and labeled with chronic refractory conditions and diagnoses and illnesses that they're always going to have. It it offers us the opportunity to tell a different story. So, and right now, when you say IVs, what is in the IV? Like what's actually happening? Is it the ketamine? Is it something else? Uh, No, we don't use ketamine in an IV administration. We do our ketamine therapy in intramuscular injections and the majority of it. And then also some in sublingual or oral trochies or rapid dissolving tablets. IV ketamine has the benefit that you can stop it. If somebody starts having a freak out or a bad trip, you can stop it. But for us as a transformational community, I'm actually curious about that. If somebody has a bad trip, that's excellent information that their stuff is right on the surface. So let's understand that further. Let's create an opportunity with the right set and setting with excellent facilitation to recontextualize a person's ability to lean into that thing that's most uncomfortable because there's so much opportunity for growth there, as you know. Totally. And it gets into the mechanism for healing that there's such great results that are coming out of this. As a matter of fact, 
sometimes I get worried that it all sounds so, you, you know, people can become almost evangelical about it. Like it's, you know, everyone put it in the water, you know, and I worry about that. Like as a group therapist, I'm always, you know, if there's only one note being hit, probably something's being missed. However, there are really fantastic numbers and effectiveness being shown with these medicines. And I am curious because they're all a little different. I actually want to get into the details of the different psychedelics and to sort of understand, like, say you have one person and they have a choice of the different psychedelics. It's like, what should they be considering? Like, what are they kind of, how do you see them used differently? And then also just in general. So you have, say, the medicines, and then what are the populations that you feel like each one speaks to? And I really want to understand how, like, how does this work? How is this so effective? So I've had a long history of intermittent depression. I was probably kindled for that. There's a long history of depression in my family, suicide, real intense dysregulation. And that layered on top of a half a dozen really severe concussions throughout snowboarding and soccer and diving and breaking my neck and all lot of different things. I had an organic etiology as well. And no one that I saw, even through all my medical training, I got into psychiatry and neurology just because I was really fascinated by the fields. And I was in my neurology training when I had my fifth concussion. No, my sixth concussion. My fifth one was when I broke my neck. That was three weeks before medical school started. So I started med school in a big halo, which was an awesome orientation to get into psychiatry and neurology. And then later, a few years later in my neurology training, I had my last concussion. And I knew because of the way I hit, I knew it was bad. I put an eight inch crack in my helmet and there was this internal voice said, you just crossed the line. I was like, whoa, that didn't sound so good. And sure enough, That's over the terrifying. coming weeks and months, I started having really severe post-concussive syndrome. And, and I asked my neurology attending physicians, I said, you know, I just got pretty wrecked. And now my sleep is dysregulated. My mood is dysregulated. I can't think well. I feel like I'm thinking through mud. My attention, focus, concentration, short-term memory, shifting sets, all that was my executive function was really lousy. And they all said the same thing. They said, yeah, you had a concussion. You have post-concussive syndrome, go home, get some rest. We hope it gets better. I'm like, well, that's all you got. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So obviously we have excellent diagnostics and really shitty therapeutics. And so I got in the lab and I wanted to understand neurorehabilitation. And then that kind of dovetailed with my work with ayahuasca. And it was the first time that I really felt my brain come online. So I closed up my clinic at the time, moved down to the jungle, lived in the jungle for a year, apprenticing with ayahuasca. So I have this understanding and appreciation of the hardware sciences and neurology and the software sciences, psychology. And that's essentially what we built at Kuya, as a transformational medicine center where we bring both together, the hardware and the software. So then to answer your last question about IVs, so the IV therapeutics that we offer are vitamin and mineral cocktails, peptide therapies. We were working with exosomes and stem cells, particularly for people who have concussive issues and need more of that neurorehabilitation and the accelerated scaffolding for neurological repair. But the FDA has cracked down on biologics, and that includes exosomes and stem cells. So you can think of stem cells as like seeds for new growth. They start really support regenesis. And what was the other thing, the exosomes? Exosomes are like the fertilizer for that growth. They're signal messengers. But anyway, so we can't do that as much, but what we do is we do, we use all the therapeutics that are appreciated in the space to be regenerative performance tools. And we put that around 
a person's experience of where they are, orienting to the goals that they have. And if they're coming from a healing community, then largely they're going to be desiring to heal from a variety of conditions. And if there, again, is an organic etiology, I also have historically had chronic cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr virus. My titers have been really high. If I'm stressed and my, I've done a lot of travel or it's in the winter months and I'm not getting as much vitamin D. And when those titers flare, I know I'm, I have a higher predilection towards depression. We know those two viral, chronic viral infections lead to chronic severe depression. So this is just an example And because of how I hit when I dove off a pier and hit a sandbar and my essentially I broke C5 and I was totally upside down. So my brain just kind of smashed into my skull plate and kind of vice versa too. So what happens then is you have pituitary dysregulation and you have an issue that looks like hypopituitarism. It's primary hypopituitarism because the primary injury is in the pituitary gland, but it looks like hypothyroidism low adrenal glands and like low testosterone, all of that. If you're just looking at the labs and you're not looking at the brain, you're going to be like, Oh, all these hormones are low. Well, let's give you hormones. That's not the issue. Like the glands are fine. The brain just can't tell those peripheral glands how to work. So you actually have to repair the brain at the central axis. So not to get too complicated, but just is just an example of where we're going in medicine, which is the appreciation that we're with this integrated system. You can't separate the mind from the brain, just like you can't separate the person from the environment. Gabor Monte is kind of like legendary quote, and it's true. So we have to understand the complexity of the human organism. And that includes looking at our brains, doing brain map systems and taking really good history and physical exams and understanding that also there's a great article in Forbes magazine. I was just reading about the reformation of the entire mental health system. And I don't know that we need the entire reformation because again, it's hardware and software together. But what they're saying is like, maybe many of our, what we call mental illnesses aren't illnesses at all. They're just adaptive responses. And I think there's a lot of truth there. Depression can be an adaptive response. Anxiety can be an adaptive response, especially when we understand what the core issue is, the core wound or the core trigger. That's where medicine comes in. So the last thing I'll say about the kind of the IV suite is like, Yes, people can optimize with IV therapeutics. And oftentimes people who have chronic mental health challenges or psychological constellation of symptoms, oftentimes they have chronic inflammation and that can look like or be kind of stimulated by a variety of different things, including gut dysbiosis, not having really awesome diets, GI inflammation. And we know in Michael Gerson's book, The Second Brain, like the neuroendocrine axis also includes this digestive understanding and appreciation because most of the ser- for example, most of the serotonin is actually produced and stored in the gut and then it gets transferred to the brain. So like our serotonin, which we understand like modulates mood, most of that comes from the gut. So if your gut's off, everything's off, like sleep, sleep is off, everything's off. So we have to understand how all of this stuff fits together. And we recognize when we start giving people IV vitamin and mineral cocktails, they start feeling good because it mainlines a lot of the building blocks to optimize neurochemistry and neuroregulation. So all of that then brings us to medicine work. When we understand and we have like this hardware framework, the brain and body physiology framework, then we can identify what those organic etiologies are. And complement to that, we want to understand what the software etiologies are. 
software meaning like mind, heart, and soul. The mind orientation is essentially, if we think about it as a computer, well, that's where we're receiving all of our belief systems, our identification fields, our expectancies around who we need to be in the world to get the love that we want. This interpersonal neurobiology starts through that mental filter. You know, we come into life born to bond. And what was like our early imprinting? Like you mentioned that before as well. What are our attachment styles? Like what was the, the safety kind of arena? And if I look at my own experience, so I was born six weeks early and I spent the majority of my first year kind of in and out of the hospital on a respirator because my lungs weren't developed and they didn't really have surfactant as a, like a, a common treatment back then. And so if I think about my little self and this little incubator thinking, what the hell <laughs> is happening? <laughs> I'm in this sterile environment. I want some warmth connection. I want mom. I want the boob. I, 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 you know, I want like all of that kind of connection time. And so we can tell a story about what that might look like and what that might mean. Now, all of these are just stories. And so we try and understand to the best of our ability, what's underneath the hood. But until you get into work, that's actually able to uncover the subconscious material, we're just telling stories and it's all kind of like guesswork. And so what are the processes that get into the subconscious and the superconscious? So I'd say like the narrative is mostly a horizontal process, but the medicine work is a vertical process. So we get into the subconscious, the deep soul level work and the superconscious, like our relationship to God and source and spirit and all of that. The experiences that offer us that degree of self-examination in today's day and age, the number one in the pole position is psychedelic therapy. It's just because it's becoming more and more appreciated, interesting. The data is super freaking good. When held in the right set and setting, psychedelic therapy is head and shoulders above the standard of care in, as, for, as far as efficacy rates and safety rates for that matter. But it's not new to the extent that we've been exploring psychedelic and transcendent states since we were more hairy monkeys you know, banging rocks around the campfire. Psilocybin goes back in the fossil records a million years. There's evidence that we've been exploring altered states with psilocybin for likely close to 200,000 years. When we transition from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens, there may have been part of this kind of exploration and connection with transcendent states through mind altering substances that actually helped us get to where we are. So we do have a biology and a need for transcendence and exploration. Psychedelic therapies is in the new modern context is just kind of standing on the shoulder of the evidence and the experiences that have come before. And that being said, psychedelic therapies are just one way to look deeper under the hood. You can get to that level of exploration in altered states through meditation, fasting, vision quest, breath work. Uh, holotropic breath work, hypnotherapy. I studied hypno for years before I was, I was even aware of psychedelic therapy because it's amazing to get under the hood when the ego can just rest its defense mechanisms long enough to have some flexibility and curiosity about actually becoming intimate with those things that we fear the most. So that was a lot. I'll just take a pause there. So thanks for <laughs> letting me riff on. And anytime, Sue, if I'm just kind of like riffing on a, a long thread, you can interrupt me. Well, no, you're actually, you're covering some really great stuff and I can feel, you know, we're working up to kind of mechanism and how things change. I was just speaking the other day to Jill Bolte-Taylor. She's the woman who did my Stroke of Insight 
She's the neuroanatomist at Harvard that watched her brain shut down. One of the best TED Talks of all time. Yeah, 28 million views. But part of what that means is there's something she's saying that people are really drawn to. You know, kind of in the middle of the conversation, I was like, what happened to her where her left brain, her default mode network just went offline? So I had the association to psilocybin or to the psychedelics as far as mechanisms and being able to quiet the conscious, the separateness, like I am me, you are you, and then just all the chatter, all the chatter, all the chatter, all the chatter. So you're right. There's different ways of getting at this. We don't want to have head injuries, which, by the way, in some of your exploration, I was wondering, did you ever look at your uh, high risk taking behaviors and <laughs> unconsciously what may you may have been acting out with those <laughs> all those head injuries? <laughs> you may not have been the first one to ask me that question. <laughs> I bet I'm not. I bet I'm not. <laughs> but it is it is interesting, right? Anyway, so my sense was that you know the language is like getting around, getting to, allowing. There's something about a release in order to gain access to this other parts of our mind that are not supported in our Western culture, that are devalued by our left thinking brain, you know, not to make it so simple as left and right, but the idea of the literal, logical, linguistic part of the mind that thinks that it knows everything. And that, you know, would I roll at the idea of mysticism and things like that? The mystical is in my experience where the magic is it's real you can't measure it but you can't deny it right and um i think it was einstein was talking about the the mystical being the language of consciousness that permeates all life all experience we can't be removed from it nor should we try to nor should we try and support medical systems that are divorced from appreciation of the mystical. And in my medical training, we made that wrong. Like animism was this kind of like old archaic belief of tribal cultures that has no place in a modern society. So not only did we just kind of shun it, we actually made it wrong and we, we developed a pathology around it. And it's unfortunate. So we're in the midst of trying to rehab all of that. The mystical experience, I think is the part of that magic that is a little scary to the medical establishment and paradigm because we haven't really been able to quantify it. And everybody's experience is a little bit different. And you can have people go through mystical states and mystical experiences, whether it's through the veil or the near death experience or a spontaneous realization. One of my early mentors, he had a clinic that was really oriented around people having spontaneous awakenings that they didn't know how to contextualize. And what might that look like? Well, he was studying more of an Indian perspective, an Ayurvedic perspective, and there's something called the, the nadis and the energy system from a Chinese medicine perspective, that would be the meridian system. And the energy centers in the body all connect to the brain and they go out the top, just like if you look at the energetic lines of the earth, it's set up as a toroidal field too, like a donut that come, energy comes in the north and up back around through the south. And so our systems are like that too. So the energy comes in and then it kind of can go up. And sometimes you can have one of these spontaneous awakenings and that can look and feel like people are going crazy because it might mean like now your antenna is tuned to a radio station that you're not familiar to listen to. And it might even be our own internal voice. It could be the voice of our ancestors. It could be the voice of information that, you know, classically we would call that like 
auditory hallucinations and we would call that psychotic. And we would call, if you have that for too long, then you're schizophrenic. And if it causes too much discomfort, then we're going to label that even with more pathology and a requirement for medication. And you might have to stay on the medication for your entire life. Well, if you look at, I think it's Robert Whitaker in the book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, our outcome measures for schizophrenia treatment are worse now than they were hundred years ago, even in the advent of all of our fancy pharmaceuticals. That's not to say pharmaceuticals don't have their place. Like if somebody's standing on a ledge or if somebody's a danger to themselves or others because they have an experience that they can't manage, then yes, let's use those. But let's understand that we should only do that while we're looking at the underlying causative factor and reasons for that. And so all of that to kind of peel it back and say, okay, yeah, in the midst of taking a more whole person perspective and what I would say like interpersonal if we talk about like concentric circles, intrapersonal within, interpersonal between people and transpersonal, like our relationship with life and God itself. When we take it from that perspective, then we see, okay, we have to appreciate that the medicines have an opportunity to open up each of those spheres. And if somebody comes into an engagement or an experience without knowing what's possible, then it can really freak them out. And a lot of even ketamine therapy is done in an IV kind of environment where you just try and put people to sleep and ride the default mode network reset and ride the inflammatory kind of lessening that happens when we clear out the glymphatic system in the brain. Body has a lymphatic system, brain has a glymphatic system. And it might be that ketamine is very good for shunting out some of that intracerebral inflammatory load. And so Yes, it's a great neurologic reset, but there's also psychological opportunity. So ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA are, are this triad right now because ketamine's legal. MDMA and psilocybin are going to become legal in the next 18 months, plus or minus early to mid 2023. And they all have a different mechanism of action. They all have a different approach. They all have a, a different felt experience. What ketamine's doing is it's offering us the opportunity to really solidify our systems, tell a different story and get people in the collective, rehabilitate the propaganda of the war on drugs, which never worked, which was inaccurate, and which was, which was unfortunate because it's made many of these medicines wrong. That's taken a while to rehabilitate that entire propaganda approach, but it was very effective. And so what ketamine, because it's legal and because it's very convenient, slots into these 60 to 90 minute sessions, because that's about the usual half-life or experience. It's telling people in the collective, medical collective and the, the layperson collective, that it can actually be safe to go through a controlled altered state experience. And there might be therapeutic benefit, whether it's just hitting the brain or in the psyche itself. And all of that's helping to reform our relationship with altered states so that when MDMA and psilocybin become legal in the next 18 months, there's more availability, there's more appreciation, and there's more grassroots demand that these therapeutics not only become legal, but that they also become available. Because right now, the way MDMA is set up, when it becomes legal, it's going to be about fourteen dollars to $16,000 per person to go through a treatment. Yeah, that, I was going to bring that up about the accessibility issue that certainly have concerns about that. And so when we can have the grassroots movement to demand that these therapeutics are not only legal, but they're also available to the best of our ability to support everybody that needs them. That means we need an entire reformation of the mental health care system. And I think we're in the midst of that. 
I certainly hope and pray that we are, but it's my, my full expectation that's going to happen too, because if you just look at the trajectory that, that we've been on and massive props continue to go out to Rick Doblin and the MAPS organization for just holding the light for so long. And all the people supporting that. Yeah, they've done what they've needed to do, which is have these patient, patient, patient conversations and relationships with the feds in order to put the evidence in front of the policymakers so that MDMA moves out of Schedule 1. And that, you know, is part of the issue, though, right? Because then you have to have these protocols that are measured and, you know, have been proven. But then in order to get into that protocol, like we're talking about sometimes multiple therapists, hours and hours and hours before and after. And so basically the folks that would be able to access that, is, you know, it really, really narrows the scope, unfortunately, even though, you know, partly based on how we're having to get it out into the world. You know, you lived overseas, you did some, you know, you, you immersed yourself and there wasn't necessarily those protocols, but there was a lot of healing that happened with healers, natural healers, I imagine. So it's not an unsolvable problem, but, you know, still like still keeping it set in setting, still keeping everything to maximize the benefit of the therapy of it, not just having a trip, but using a medicine to actually do the therapy, to unleash the therapy that you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. We'll continue to create new therapeutic models to be able to offer the medicine at scale and yet not compromise clinical excellence, efficacy, and safety. That's just what we do. We innovate. We identify crisis situation, see the opportunity, innovate a solution, and then continue to iterate towards maximization of its efficacy. Yeah, and I think yeah, we're we'll going to do there. that with the medicine work. Right now, to your point, MDMA-supported psychotherapy is done in three sessions, minimum of two. People can opt in for a third, and the vast majority of people do. So let's call it three sessions. And then you have three psychotherapy sessions before anything happens and after all of that happens and in between the sessions. So that's three treatment sessions. That's 12 psychotherapy sessions. And that's with two therapists. So you have the time to compensate the therapist for their time. And then you have the cost of building in the research parameters and observation parameters and the bureaucratic requirements and administrative infrastructure to make sure all that happens in a good, safe way. So you can understand why the cost would be so high. Well, there's a ton of money in psychedelic therapy. There are a few companies right now that collectively are inching towards two plus billion dollars individually in valuation. And there's no lack of interest. There's no lack of demand and there's no lack of money. It's just about understanding, can we move from such a capitalistic orientation towards a service-based orientation to actually serve the clients that need these treatments and do that with innovative care and in a reformed medical system that actually therapists are reimbursed for what they require for their time. The insurance companies have built this into their model that small business owners have built this into Mm -hmm. their models as well. So I think we're going to see a lot of innovation. Uh, We're just kind of on the leading edge of it right now. So that's the macro. That's kind of the big picture. How about if we go in a little bit more to the detail? So you mentioned ketamine 
I've worked with, as a therapist, people that are doing ketamine treatment. And it's interesting. Like, it's not even a psychedelic. Is that right? It's Classically, it ketamine is not a psychedelic. It's a dissociative right. anesthetic. So it's used in the surgical care, 50s and 60s. And that was originally in veterinarian medicine. And then it switched over to human care. And it seems less about at least how it's been implemented that I can see from my tiny little porthole window. It feels to me like it is more mechanical, like the reset. Sometimes what I'll say is like, you know, the snow path, you know, with your skis, and that if you can shake the globe, so to speak, and have new paths that, it, that like you said, it clears it out. But I'm just using like regular language, <laughs> right? So that's great. And then the psilocybin, there's definitely more of a sense of story that happens with that particular medicine, I believe. So could you say a little bit about the mechanism, about who you know that it's very, very good for? And before we say that, you know, there's a disclaimer. Yeah, good call. So basically, Sue and I just want to know everybody is listening that appreciates that there are a few things that need to be taken into consideration when you're thinking about medicine work. First and foremost is legality and safety. Psilocybin and MDMA and some of the other medicines we talk about are not legal. Ketamine is, but it's prescription only. It does have addiction potential. Anybody that says ketamine does not have an addiction potential doesn't know what they're talking about or they have another agenda because it does. So it's understandable and important that it would be a controlled substance. It is being used in outpatient setting and as ketamine nasal spray. We can talk about the efficacy or benefit or kind of approach to that, but it's still just like opiate pain medications. They have an addiction potential. We know there's an right. opiate epidemic, right? Well, right, there's right, still right. prescription that's schedule three. Not everybody's ready to have a medicine experience. There are contraindications. There are very few contraindications for ketamine. There are very few contraindications for psilocybin. There are contraindications for MDMA. One of those being heart rate variability, not HRV right. in regards to like what we're tracking, but like tachycardia, elevation right. of heart rate by 20 right. to 30 points can happen. Elevation of blood pressure by 20 to 30 points can happen. So anybody right. with a really severe cardiac history, that needs to be evaluated. So that's some of the physical contraindications. And then you have the psychological contraindications, even though psilocybin is extraordinarily physically safe. There's no LD 50, which means like you could eat a trash bag of mushrooms. <laughs> That's in psilocybin is mushrooms, by the way, psychedelic mushrooms. Well, there's 250 plus psilocybin species in North America alone. And like 60 to 70 species of those are psychedelic. So when we're talking about psilocybin, usually it's cubensis classically in the literature people are talking about. So you could eat a trash bag of psilocybin cubensis and not die. You would probably vomit, but there's no LD50, but there's a psychological component and kind of blastome that happens. So if people take a heroic dose, usually one to two grams dried is kind of a mild dose, three to four grams, is more of a moderate dose, five plus grams is usually a higher dose. Some people aren't ready to go into the right. deeper waters. Well, and the disclaimer that we want to say is that as you're getting into more specifics, that as you're listening and hearing this, that this isn't medical advice. You know, this isn't designed to help you figure out what dose you need to go take. <laughs> so we're just talking in general about the effect of it and the research. And we do want to get into what you're talking about. But I think the thing that was important was for everybody to use their discretion 
and they're complicated medicines that you know are mostly illegal probably wherever you're listening even though that's changing so having said that with discretion <laughs> so you were beginning to talk about the effect of psilocybin in particular and the therapy like what's the therapy part of it yeah you can think of it like cars you know cars are just tools they help us go from place to place I wouldn't want a toddler driving a car because they don't have that kind of skill set nor psychological development. And I don't want many people working with psychedelic states if they don't have the skill set or the psychological development to be able to come intimately into those places that they fear the most. So oftentimes if people say, well, I want to have an experience or I want to start the process, I say, well, great. I appreciate your eagerness or your curiosity at minimum. Do you have a meditation practice? Do you have an experience of getting really scared or, you know, up and close and personal with something that feels very uncomfortable? And if so, how did you manage it? Have you ever been in a float tank? Do you know what a float tank is? Can you be with yourself in the dark alone? If that's scary, how do you deal with it? When you get triggered or stressed, how do you deal with that? And so there's a lot to talk about kind of leading in how to self-regulate, how to come back to breath, how to recognize when the mind goes on a crazy loop, get curious and recontextualize the interest level because the ego typically moves away from the discomfort, particularly in our society. We, we don't like being uncomfortable and yet that can be rehabilitated. We can tell a different story. Well, even the story you mentioned earlier about somebody getting very uncomfortable and that you were encouraging to be curious about that rather than just to run from it related to the ketamine example from earlier, that is one of the things it's like, is it a Rorschach kind of, you have experiences and then we attribute meaning to them, right? That's a version. Or is it that it's more direct than that, that it's not just our association to the visual, you know what I mean? That it's more the unconscious really leading us down the path of the things that we need to address kind of more personally, more specifically. Totally. Yeah. I think it's well said. We have conscious mind. We have subconscious mind. We have super conscious mind. We also have the collective unconscious. I mean, there's so many different layers. I would think of conscious, like our conversation here is like largely ego oriented beta waveform patterns, the day to day. And the ego is not bad. It's just how we navigate life. We can go below that into the subconscious, what we don't know immediately available, but we can investigate with some leading technologies and therapy and looking under the hood with some of these technologies like medicine work. We can start to get underneath that. We also go into the superconscious, and some people might call that like soul or high self or connection to God. Those are all different by the way, but just for examples. So there's these layers of knowing, just like there's layers of being. And when we can start to tell a different story, I mean, it's also true that Mike Tyson's coach was fond of saying like, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> so I might tell a person like, it can be helpful to lean into your fear and they're like, oh yeah, great. I'll do that thing. And then we get into medicine space and they start freaking out. It's because they got punched in the face and that's why I'm there or you're there or the facilitators there so that we can help them remember like, okay, let's just slow it all down come back to your breath, right? We were doing that breath training practice. Do you remember that? That's why I put that whole series in a dose of hope, kind of like walking Alex through the self-regulation breath work practices before we even got deeper into the weeds of any trauma material. Because in the midst of the trauma, the ego is going to go, holy shit, run for the hills or 
fight, flight, or freeze. We just kind of go into that old neural pattern. Those are the grooves in the snow, right? And then when you have somebody who can just catch you right in that moment, lovingly and supportively and say, okay, let's just take a pause, take a breath, check in. How do you feel? What do you notice? Can you put name to it? Can you put association to it? Is there any image? How old do you feel? Where is it coming up in your system? Are there any like visual representations, any memories associated? You start adding kind of the contextual conversation and questions around it. And do you do that during the experience or is that something that you're doing like those level, that level of questions? It's, it's such an art and it's such an alchemy. It's kind of like Miles Davis said, you know, the magic is the space between the notes. So really good facilitators are also conscious of not trying to rescue their clients from their own suffering. Like one of my teachers told me a long time ago, because he would see that I, you know, I just want people to feel better. And that's mm-hmm. kind of why I'm in this work. I know it's a potential key for humanity's healing. And he said, well, you also have to check the fact that if you're rescuing somebody from their suffering, you might be robbing them of the greatest teaching. And I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. really important for me to understand. Mm-hmm. So I've gotten better just with experience of being able to appreciate like, okay, I don't get excited for people suffering because of how it feels. I get excited about the opportunity for them to come into contact with something that they've been avoiding for so long. And I get, I get excited about what that opportunity could serve for them in their lives. And so all of those questions that I just mentioned, I'm checking whether it's appropriate to even ask any question somebody might just be itchy, scratchy, squirmy, really an intense experience. And I might not do a thing because I want them to just linger as long as it takes for it to get really ripe. And as soon as I see them like start to run for the hills, then I'm going to ask them to just pause. But if they're in the midst of it and kind of wrestling with it and they're getting, they're coming to terms with it. It's kind of like in an ayahuasca ceremony. You know, if you know anything about that medicine, it's a purgative. Mm-hmm. So it generates a, a cleansing process. He means throwing up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's throwing up. And I don't want to stop that process. Like if somebody's sick, if, they, if somebody has food poisoning, you want them to get it out. Well, you can think about it the same way as poisoning in the psyche. It's old trauma, old wounds, old programs, something that's been festering there and is ready now to be released. So let's not arrest the process. Let's actually support it and be as humane, compassionate, directive, guiding when necessary, but it's kind of like a midwife supports a natural process. Mom knows cellularly how to deliver this little being. And that little being knows cellularly how to move through into the world. The midwives are there to make sure that if a crisis happens, then there's intervention and there's support. Yeah. I love that analogy because it also speaks to that the body knows what it needs to do. And you're also describing a good course of therapy and the therapist's challenge of hanging back and how massively individualized it is, that there's not a formula. In my experience, when I was exploring some of this, for me to become aware of someone helping was very distracting. Like I would have to really like get them out of my brain so that I could just have my experience instead of like, how are they? What are they? What's happening over there? You know? So it, it's just so individual. And that's what you're saying. That's the art of it is really kind of feeling your way into what is going to serve them 
and serve this depth of experience so that they can come see things, come to know things, let go of things, hold on to things in the way that they, like with their own little fingerprint, have to do or need to do or, or have the option, have the opportunity to do. Totally. Yeah, I, th- I think of it too like dance. If there's a certain rhythm playing and there's a certain style of dance, like flamenco or salsa or Texas two-step or or whatever, that that has a blueprint, right? And so you have a blueprint in, in how you perform and, and offer your psychotherapy. If it's internal family systems, if it's cognitive behavioral, DBT, you know, psychodynamic psychotherapy, all, you know, all the different blueprints, and yet there's still the alchemy and that's the mm-hmm. magic. And that's some of the mysticism and that's some of the art. That's right. Because what you're tuning into isn't the conscious mind at all to know, do I speak now or do I not? That isn't a literal logical experience at all. So you are tuning in. That's how you, that's how you, or even like with the dance that you're describing, your partner's not saying turn now. You know what I mean? Like it's the magic of the feeling of it. So what about MDMA? That is the one that, you know, a lot of people have done it recreationally. They know how to, you know, be at a big dance party and have a good time and sweat a lot. What about the therapy related to MDMA? And also listeners, I want to direct you all to a book that he just published. And we're going to say more about that later. But what was the name? It was a pill of hope. Uh, Dose of hope. Dose of hope. It's in a pill. So visually, there's a pill around it. And it's a really interesting, different kind of book because it was co-written with a pseudonym of a person who went through this experience. And so it really is kind of walking you through detail by detail, kind of what it's like and what the healing journey is like. So I would really highly recommend it. I was really uh, felt fortunate to be able to get a hold of it and take a look beforehand, but it's very interesting. So MDMA, go. <laughs> It's so exciting. It's so fascinating in how it works. You'd be hard pressed to find a better molecule for working with PTSD or trauma or like psychological defense mechanisms that hold us back from being our most radically true self. And that might be our radically wounded self. Great. Let's bring that person, that part into the center of the circle. Give that part the microphone. Let us get curious about what it has to say. And so when we look at the efficacy of MDMA supported psychotherapy, like phase one trials, 83% cure rate for chronic severe PTSD, cure rate. There's nothing like that in psychiatric Mm -hmm. care. And how did they separate out? Because that's a lot of very specific attention and attunement and care with the therapists and the folks that are assisting. How did they sort out like what was the medicine versus what is this intense therapeutic experience, you know, where where there's focused therapy? It's a good question. It's MDMA supported therapy, right? It's not MDMA alone. Right. That is really important. It's not the trip. (laughs) It's not the trip. The trip just opens up the opportunity to get into the deeper part work. And so the Mythofers, Annie and Michael Mythofer, who ran the, the, they were the leads for phase one trials. Their psychological orientation is internal family systems work, IFS, parts work. I think it was Dick Schwartz who just wrote this new book called uh, No Bad Parts. He was the founder of IFS and essentially mm. like this kind of parts work. I know. We've been after him to, to bring him onto the show. We can't quite get a hold of him. So if anybody knows him, point him our way. Such a good stack. Andy and Michael, that's their zone of genius is doing that IFS work. And then you put IFS work and it doesn't have to be IFS. It can be a lot yeah. of other like body-centered psychotherapies, Peter Levine's work, Hakomi. There's a bunch. 
But the way they provide that IFS and part of our training through the MAPS organization was to watch them in action. And they're just Jedis. They know that work really well. And it essentially is just this radical play ground of compassion that invites whatever part is online to have the stage and the microphone and to say whatever it needs to say. Now, if you're working with somebody with chronic severe PTSD, that part is probably a wounded part. It's been really hard to access by a person's just sheer will. If you were to tell them to go rescue the part of themselves that was horribly traumatized, well, they may have been trying to do that subconsciously as a part of their PTSD internal process of healing. That's why they've had flashbacks and nightmares. They keep reliving it in order to play it through. But the guard against it, because the ego defenses are in place also for an adaptive response. If somebody's right. in the midst of yeah. massive trauma, you need to kind of yeah. like compartmentalize it. Otherwise it feels too overwhelming. So what does the MDMA do or what's the experience of it? Or Three primary things in the brain. It calms the fear center, the amygdala. It increases blood flow and kind of the energetic valence of the prefrontal cortex. So you have a better witness perspective. And it increases the connection between the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. So not only do you have a better witness, you have better memory of the full context of the experience. Usually if somebody is stuck in a loop, they're just looking at kind of a narrow sliver of the entire film of that whole context. So what you just said is really important. And I know a lot of our listeners will be able to track this and really understand what you mean. So saying that again, that sometimes if I can say it back, it means you know, that it's actually the information has actually gotten in. But the thing that I got excited about was particularly the hippocampal involvement, because the amygdala, we get that we know fear, yeah, all that stuff. But by stimulating and focusing the prefrontal cortex in the hippocampus, oh, and that you said that it uh, regulates the fear center. So it lowers, lowers your fear, it has more focus and clarity. And then at the same time, the, this was the one that got me really excited was the hippocampus, because that is you know, the way we talk about it sometimes is the therapist is the hippocampus. <laughs> and so that's, we love the hippocampus. We're pro hippocampus in this community. <laughs> so that it strengthens that, that it focuses that, that it facilitates a connection with the higher mind and the prefrontal cortex. I haven't heard that before. That's new to me. That's exciting. Yeah. You hit all three, right? It affects the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. Yeah. Great. And through that, we have less fear, better witness, better memory better witness. That was the other one. That's exciting too. Yeah. Super exciting. Well, better witness also because you're not in it, that you're witnessing it and you're able to objectively not make yourself too big, not make yourself too little. I think also a loving, compassionate witness. That's one of the things associated, at least in my mind with MDMA facilitated therapy is the love. You're just flooded with oxytocin. I was, I was going to ask you, is it oxytocin? Yeah. You're just flooded with oxytocin, which is this bonding hormone. Yeah. It's the hormone that moms release times of childbirth and yeah. when they're lactating and we're pro oxytocin too, pro oxytocin and pro hippocampus. <laughs> right. So that's the summary statement of the differential that happens. PTSD, high amygdala, low oxytocin. Because most of the time when people are traumatized, it depends on their attachment style, actually, if they're avoidant or they're anxious. In either case, the oxytocin or the bonding, let's just call it the bonding piece. The bonding piece can oftentimes feel unsafe because it's, it can be crazy, like 
you know, I just need somebody to help me with this thing because that part is just so traumatized. It wants safety and security. How do we auto-regulate when we're stressed? Some of us kind of lean in and over-attach. Some of us lean out and kind of dissociate or, or get distance. We're all going for the same thing, which is safety and security in our attachment. And a lot of that will come up through the process. So now you have this pro-relational oxytocin C of curiosity and availability, especially when facilitated by somebody who knows how to do this work, like, oh, wow, this part's now coming back up to the surface. Kind of like, can we just give that part some space, some time to say what it has to say? Let's learn about it. Let's get to know it. Let's validate it. And that's a little different than psilocybin, I think. So what I'd say is MDMA is interpersonal between you and I, between anybody in the field and between all my little parts, interpersonal horizontal, like 3D, like if I, I scanned the horizon, this world, MDMA is very much of this world medicine. Psilocybin is very much a vertical medicine because it can go deep into the soul level matrix. Like think about where mushrooms grow. They grow under the ground. They grow in the dark and it's a DMT based molecule. So it also goes up to God and you can have these like really transpersonal transcendent experiences with it too. So it kind of depends on the direction it can be very healing. You don't get many bad trips of MDMA, but you can get bad trips of psilocybin. If a person goes too big, too fast, or it's not in the right set and setting. Or we should say uncomfortable trips, right? Well, but bad trips happen. For example, if somebody took a truckload of mushrooms and they went to a party, like probably not the best setting to do deep work, particularly if they've never worked with that medicine or not done a whole lot of personal work before. I know people that take truckloads of mushrooms and go to parties and have fine but it's usually because they've kindled that kind of process. They're familiar with altered states. They've done a bit of like their own personal work. And I'm not a fan of really getting in huge altered states and going to parties anyway, because it's a chaotic field. If you're, if you're wanting to do deep personal growth work, then have a controlled environment that's supportive to that therapy. If you're taking a bunch of altered states medicines and you're going to a party, that's a recreational experience. That's not a therapeutic experience. Not to make either better or worse than the other, it just depends on what your intention is. In the therapeutic setting, the dosages may be, one, they're, even the collaboration of what the dose would be is part of the therapy, I believe, right? But they would tend to be a little bit higher than a recreational experience. Is that right? Not necessarily. I guess it depends on who's partying. <laughs> I, I think of some of my friends who go heavy and hard and they love to play big and I can bless them up for their choice. I know they play safe. If they weren't playing safe, I'd probably be that you know guy in the stand shaking his finger like, dude, you got to really watch out because it's not just your experience, like you're affecting everybody else's field too. So it's really about the orientation and the intention going in. The intention for recreational is usually just to you know, have an ecstatic state, maybe a really joyful process. Awesome. Typically much higher likelihood of having a bad trip in a therapeutic arena. The orientation is growth. And that means we welcome the discomfort into the space so we can look at it, learn from it, grow through it with it and become more whole as a result. So people, when they are doing recreational experiences and it's really haphazard and kind of dangerous, that's a disintegrative process. It's cut. It's, disconnecting them from what we could describe essentially like their, their more true essence. People going through a therapeutic process, these medicines are integrative because they're bringing all the parts home into a greater experience of wholeness, union, self-compassion, 
like Maslow's term, self-realization. We only become self-realized when we brought all of our parts home. Yeah. And one of the really exciting things in the research is the effect with addiction. So what I was, I was imagining people listening and hearing this and MDMA and psilocybin, ketamine has the potential for addiction. It's but, still mild compared to its therapeutic right. potency and valence, but it's still important to recognize as a part of the disclaimer. Right. In contrast to the other ones, which I'm not as clear about MDMA, but with psilocybin, that's not typically, you, you mentioned the recreational use. Psilocybin does not have an addictive potential. It's actually anti-addictive. Yeah. Some people might get kind of like cravey about the transpersonal state. MDMA can have a bit more of an addictive potential. And that's part of why it went into Schedule 1 in the early 80s, because people were using it really dangerously, like raves, parties, dancing all night, not drinking enough water, having electrolyte imbalances, ending up in ER, either tripped out or having seizures and like, oh, wow, there's this big like ecstasy thing hitting the market and hitting the road. Let's shut it down. Like we did with all the other psychedelics. It can be a bit of a, like a physiologic kindling because you're like, I can only get to that kind of elevated state by using this medicine. So I'm going to keep using that medicine and then you keep chasing the high. And then there's a letdown too, right? A massive letdown, especially if people have predilection towards depression because you you go on these really high states, high rides, and then you have this crash on the other side. So it's part of why we in the dose of hope, you know, the the ideal therapeutic container has preparation for the neurochemistry. You boy up the neurochemistry, add a lot of antioxidants, and then on the backside, you replenish with the building blocks to reestablish healthy neurochemistry. So that's one of the reasons that that disclaimer was earlier, is this isn't just go crazy by any stretch. But I do imagine if people have been following along this conversation, I can imagine people getting very excited about this. And I hate to like gather people and get them excited about something and then just say, sorry, you know, or whatever, right? Like that there's nowhere to send, I can't refer you someplace, you know, but there's a wider thing. So what, if somebody's excited about this, you know, what next? Well, unfortunately we're on the feds timeline for legalization of MDMA. Rick Doblin's estimate is going to be early to mid 2023. Psilocybin just passed in Oregon as a statewide therapeutic. And that was like November of 2020 election. And so there's still going to be some bureaucratic administrative heavy lifting to get that implemented, but it's in motion. Just like cannabis went legal medically in California 25 years ago, and they were the first ones to do that. I think there's going to be a lot of states that now come into pushing for statewide legalization. So that's all happening. Ketamine's legal. But those are kind of the big ones. Those are the big ones. But, you know, you, you started, though, by talking about your clinic so that there's it's not just those medicines that they're like you said, the breath work, the meditation, deep meditation, finding community that is interested in some of these more mystical states and kind of whole body healing. It's not just the medicine, right? It's not just the medicine. That's why at Kuya, we have all those therapeutic suites yeah. that I mentioned And it's really amazing to be able to support people getting into medicine work by working in the float tank because they get used to being with their own process. It's easier to start regulating your breath consciously. Flotation therapy is also an amazing integration tool for ketamine work. Then when you put together those kind of things with contrast therapy, sauna and cold plunging, now you have an active experience and a consistent practice of regulating your nervous system. It's the ability and willingness to lean into something that's uncomfortable, finding your breath through it, particularly in the cold plunge. And I'm classically not a fan of cold water. 
I love being in the mountains and I love skiing and snowboarding, but <laughs> I have not classically been a fan of submerging my body in cold water. And it's a phenomenal practice. It increases norepinephrine 500%. Oh, wow. Only three minute, 40 degrees plus or minus. And it doesn't stay up there, but as far as like an immediate antidepressant effect, cold plunging is better than medication. It is more adaptive and resilience building than pharmaceuticals. And it has this massive anti-inflammatory effect because cryotherapy just does that systemically and centrally. So when we stack all of these benefits, there's a very specific reason that I put all of those therapeutics into like one umbrella because mm -hmm. nobody had done that before. And so that's one of the reasons that we're tracking all of our data because we want to be able to tell the new story. That's right. And yeah, well, that's why I went back to it actually is so that there isn't just the frustration of, you know, sorry, you're not going to be able to get this. But also, would you encourage people, you know, again, I went back to the more well-rounded, all these options, but one of the things that was told to me at some point was that conferences and the map, like if, if you're a therapist, there's maps that are doing training with therapists. There's trials that are happening all over. Anything else you wanted to? Yeah. If people are interested to be MDMA supported therapists, you have to go through maps because they're the ones in right relationship with the feds and they're kind of scripting and offering the training that they know is important. And Rick's been really forward facing in regards to the recognition that we're going to need a lot of therapists mm -hmm. trained up because there's no lack of demand. I doubt there's going to be a lack of demand in our lifetimes. Ideally, we would do what we want to do for everybody, which is not just give them a fish, but teach them how to fish. So they're still not dependent on something exogenous or external. They can develop their own resilience, develop their own skills of self-mastery and transformation. These are just tools to help yep. people get to that place. That is such an important point because I really think that I didn't understand that as deeply as I could have, but that I do now. And it's, it's a big distinction. So in that sense, it's not the event itself. It's that event or that experience frees you to do your therapy. And really just kind of like EMDR, you know, when you learn some things about how to target particular symptoms, you can begin to almost do that. You can begin to like, okay, if I was an EMDR, what would be the, my target that I'm working on? So the same thing. So if you were going to have an experience like this, what would your journey be? What would your intention be? What would you want to happen? And whether or not you have that medicine, that's still a good practice. Like you said, the meditation, the writing, the journaling, like taking yourself seriously, finding these, you know, I've also heard like spotlight consciousness and lantern consciousness, and they're both good. But, you know, it takes some practice, especially with a culture that doesn't support it, of moving into lantern consciousness, which I think is a parallel to what you were saying earlier about the transcendental so many things to do to deepen our connection to the world and to one another and to spirituality with or without these medicines. I had also interviewed Trey Ratcliffe. Are you familiar with him? Mm -hmm. Super interesting guy. But he has a non-medicine, it's super hard to explain, but basically it's a 3D video that goes with some meditation apps. So I'm going to link that in our show notes if people are interested in that, bring that back up. And you have been so generous to share your wisdom and your experience with us. And would you say a little bit about if people are interested in contacting you, what that would look like and where they should find you and, and anything else you want to share with folks? The top of mind these days is Kuya. I've been working on opening the center for four years. 
Because you're affiliated with multiple centers, I think. I do medically advise to a variety of centers nationally and globally. Gotcha. But this is your baby. My baby, so to speak. (laughs) And we just opened three weeks ago. So I'm super stoked. It's already showing us the opportunities that we didn't even recognize before. So I think there's this organic process of me doing my part to listen and to not think that I know where this is going. I just know that we've built something really beautiful and amazing. And I want to be a student of her and this entire unfolding. Mm, Uh, I will continue to be an educator and advocate for transformational medicine because I do believe that that's on the horizon and one of our biggest opportunities in mental health. And I don't have all the answers. I am just radically continuing to stay in that the curiosity field. And I wanted to build a center that is of excellence that we can iterate from, bring people to, that's part of the community. I want to create more and more of the consortium and the think tank of collaborators in the space. So how would they find you? Kuya.life, K-U-Y-A dot L-I-F-E. Kuya means uh, love in Quechua. So Kuya.life is our center. People can also find me at my website, drdanningle.com. That has a variety of different podcasts and other kind of educational pieces. Fullspectrummedicine.com. That's my education advocacy platform specifically for medicine work. And I've got a lot of free content on there about integration practices, preparation practices. And then our nonprofit, thankyoulife.org, is funding stream to scholarship people for medicine work that wouldn't be able to afford it themselves. Uh, I think that's wonderful. (laughs) You've got your hands in a lot of different things. So I was thinking like, you're still snowboarding. It's just, uh, you know, the the ground is different. (laughs) You're going fast. That's a very good analogy. Yes. May that continue to happen. Exactly. (laughs) And may we have as much fun doing both. (laughs) And your book. I want to say that as well and where you can get that. A Dose of Hope. It's a story about MDMA-supported psychotherapy. Essentially a parable narrative to be able to give the reader first-person perspective of what it's like to go through MDMA therapy without having to go into the doctor's office themselves, so to speak. And it also is for the clinician too, because I wanted to give some just core, in my experience, wisdom teachings around facilitating this kind of work, but I didn't want it to be drab and like bullet point, like, oh, these are the things to think about with preparation experience and integration. I wanted to kind of like with kids, sometimes you sneak the peas under the mashed potatoes. Mm, I wanted to get in some of the good teachings, but do it in a way that was entertaining and engaging. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, great. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I really appreciate you spending time with us and sharing this with us. I know people are going to be very interested. This is all about getting better at healing humans (laughs) and transforming humans. So thank you. I hope you all enjoyed the episode. Thank you, Simple Practice, for supporting Therapist Uncensored. So Simple Practice is a management practice system. Most of us really want to focus primarily on our clients and not the business aspects. And Simple Practice has really made it easier for Sue and I and 100,000 other professionals to schedule appointments, file insurance claims. You can even do telehealth sessions and so much more. It's all HIPAA compliant. You get your first two months for the price of one. Just go to simplepractice.com backslash therapist uncensored and learn more. And want to also do a really big shout out to our Neuro Nerd community. So at the time of this recording, by the way, Sue is walking the online community through the whole brain living. Jill Bolte-Taylor's, for those of you that listened to that episode, 
She is taking parts of it and teaching it to our premium members. And then at the end, the cool thing was they can all get together and discuss it live on a Zoom meeting together. But that is just one of many cool things we do for our premium members. We also host trainings. We do Ask Me Anything sessions, extra episodes. And by the way, it is ad-free But the most important thing is you get to be part of our community and help support and get this great content out to everyone far and wide. So if you can, we would really appreciate your support at therapistuncensored.com backslash join. Thanks so much for joining us today and we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.